Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Normally, we uh, have experts that deal with adult infections. Today, we have a special guest, pediatric infectious disease physician that focuses on highly immunocompromised kids. Uh, Dr. Muller, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. So, uh, first of all, did I pronounce your name correct? You did. You did pronounce my name correctly, although I will answer to uh, pretty much any pronunciation. I'm not particularly concerned about it. And, and will, will you write reports about presidents in Russia, or is that a different Mueller? That's a, that's a different Mueller. But I, actually, the, the anecdote I have is I was interviewed for a news program once, and they put Robert Mueller at the bottom. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. So uh, tell us a little about yourself when you're not working as a uh, high-stakes lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, what do I do outside of work? That's a great question because I do so much work. Um, you know, I like to, I actually like to work out. I like to do a lot of running. I've done a couple of half marathons. And I'm not sure I'm up for anything more than that, though. Uh, there is a famous marathon that runs through the city streets of your city. There is. It's a coming up this Sunday, actually. Wow. Uh, and have you done the half marathons parts of it? So the, the half marathons are usually done on different days and they have a different route. And, you know, I think the marathon is popular enough that the shorter races that often go along with longer races, they don't usually combine that with the marathon, is my understanding. Got, got it. So um, tell us about your journey to pediatrics and to infectious disease within pediatrics and to immunocompromised patients within that. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I did not have a traditional route into medicine or into pediatrics. Um, I actually started as an undergraduate in engineering with an intent of pursuing bioengineering as a career uh, and went to graduate school in bioengineering. I got my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania and worked in industry for probably about four or five years before I realized that I think I felt I could have a bigger impact in medicine than mm -hmm. in industry. And so that's what inspired me to go to medical school. And initially, I went to medical school with the goal of doing pediatric hematology oncology. But I remained pretty open-minded throughout medical school um, and didn't really settle on a subspecialty until I got into pediatric, re pediatric residency, which I did in uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, and there, I was, I think, really impressed by the breadth of knowledge of a lot of our ID folks in uh, pediatric infectious diseases. And also really likes the the concept, you know, hematology, oncology kind of lives in your own little place in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Ideas all over the hospital. I, I really did enjoy that part of the, the clinical management of patients within infectious diseases. But I did know that I wanted to primarily focus on research. And so I went to uh, University of Washington in Seattle for fellowship training um, and wanted to focus on host response to infection, which is, I think, sort of a natural parallel to having a clinical specialty within immunocompromised patients. And uh, you know, I think a lot of us know that the Seattle folks are pretty strong in that particular area, both in the adult side and the pediatric side. Um, so I, I got good training in both clinical medicine and in basic sciences. Was was really a translational project as a fellow. I was uh, involved in investigating T cell responses to candidate vaccines for HSV in, using mouse models, and I was able to take that work to Chicago, which, which is where I've been since uh, since I lost fellowship in 2007. Initially supported through a KO8, and I was looking primarily at a similar concept, how the immune system, both innate immune system and cellular immune system respond to vaccination, um, but started shifting more into newborn infection. So looking at mass models where the mice are really basically just about a week old, which are, are a little bit closer developmentally to uh, newborn humans. That actually was going reasonably well, but it, you know the funding environment has always been challenging and it got pretty challenging right about the time when it came to 
really getting it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I sort of slowly moved into clinical research in part because of that difficulty in, in generating enough funding to support that research and have been doing mostly clinical research probably for about the past seven or eight years in infectious diseases. So, you know, I think it's sort of a, a long journey within um, medicine and within research to encompass a lot of different aspects of research. But I think that's actually one of the things I like about pediatrics is you really do get an opportunity to pursue a lot of different aspects, not just of clinical care, but also of research. Now, at University of Washington, uh, the uh, powerhouse of viral research, is that where you got into uh, viral infection and uh, that interest? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I actually had a little bit of a, a shift in, in my initial project. I had started to work on uh, cellular immunity in newborns and how it might differ from adult mice. Uh, the mentor I had at the time moved on to a different project. So I actually switched into a study that involves sort of similarly cellular immunity, but specifically focusing on DNA vaccines directed against HSV. So, you know, sort of foreshadowing, I guess, the the studies that now involves mRNA vaccines in humans, <laughs> in children, which I, which I'm involved in at this point. But we are really looking at the diversity of the cellular response and how it responded to different antigens within herpes simplex, which is a much more complicated virus than the respiratory viruses that we study now. Is that why we don't have a herpes simplex vaccine? We have a VZV one, but not herpes simplex. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's obviously that's a really complicated question. There's been a lot of candidates for vaccines for herpes simplex going back decades now. Um, you can get a, a really robust antibody response against surface proteins of herpes simplex, but it's not protective. And the and the protection differs depending on the context in which you're talking about it. When you're talking about uh, when you're talking about herpes simplex vaccines, so for example, do you want sterilizing immunity to protect you from ever getting genital infection? Or was what you really care about the the recurrent infections in patients who have problems, especially with genital herpes, which was the main focus of what I was working on. In pediatrics, the important thing is whether or not the baby gets infected. And that's actually a much higher bar than whether or not you have recurrent infection in the genital tract, because babies don't have to have, you don't have to have clinically significant lesions for a baby to acquire infection at the time of delivery. So, I mean, we're interested in all of those questions, but I think that sort of illustrates part of the challenge. In, in varicella infection, you know, the varicella vaccine is not perfect. It doesn't necessarily protect you from, from having reactivation, but it does make it less likely that you'll have severe cancer or severe sequelae from other turns. Is there cross-reactivity between uh, varicella vaccine and, say, getting HSV? Not to my knowledge. I don't think that the two viruses are similar enough that you would get a significant amount of protection against, from one against the other. The different serotypes of HSV might provide a little bit of moderate cross-protection, but even mm-hmm. those don't. You can get super-infected with HSV-2 after having had HSV-1 for your whole life and vice versa. Got it. Got it. So I'm going to switch gears for a little bit and talk about a case. And this is a topic that there's been a good amount of work done at Northwestern about, but it continues to be a uh, challenging and vexing issue for uh, for us. So the case that I'm going to read out to you is a um, is a hypothetical case. It's sort of a composite of various patients. It's for illustrative purposes, so there, there's no uh, HIPAA concern. It is a 30-month-old boy with history of heart transplantation at three months of age on mycophenolate and tacrolimus with target levels of 10 to 12, CMV donor negative, recipient negative, and the child is coming to clinic with a several months course of loose stools and weight loss. So 
what are uh, how do you approach that at this point? What are some of the things that you're interested? As an adult, we take a lot of history. As kids, the history is pretty focused. Uh, oftentimes it is, but you know, I think it it may be similar, but have slightly different emphasis. I guess is the way I would maybe look at it. This is, and I think this is probably true on the adult side too. This is one of the more common reasons we see patients in the outpatient pediatric transplant ID clinic is this concern about changes in the stool. And the reason I put it that way is that it's often the case, and this is true in general pediatrics, not just in transplant ID in pediatrics. It's often the case that the caregivers don't really have a definition for diarrhea in the same way that the providers do. They will consider any change in stool to be diarrhea, even if it's only once a day and just happens to be a little bit loose. So I think where we often start, and probably on the adult side, it's the same, um, is questions about exactly what is going on. How many stools a day is it? What's the frequency, consistency, and when did they start noticing it? Were there any changes that they can remember about the time that it started? In this case, it's been going on for several months, so there may not be uh, very much in that particular area of the history. Um, But medication changes, they may remember. Dietary changes, they may remember. Certainly, if there was travel, which I think is something that we often will want to ask about for diarrhea, that will be something that they might remember. Or if they went camping or something like that. The other parts of the history that may be useful for for children, you know, this is a 30-month-old, he may be going to daycare if he's uh, several months or if he's far enough out from transplant. And, uh, you know, I think in this particular case, he's he was transplanted very early in life. And so, he's, he's probably resumed a lot of normal toddler age activities. Or are, are there people in the family who may have had some illness at the same time that may have resolved for everybody else, but not resolved for this particular patient? Those can all give you clues about um, exactly what's going on. The other thing I think that might be a little bit different in pediatrics, and I'd be interested actually in hearing if this is the case in the adult side, is that sometimes these patients have had such a long medical history that stooling is like the one thing that parents have some control over and can monitor very thoroughly. And so sometimes they are way more nervous about stooling changes than the providers are. And I think that's important to just bring up because even though in certain cases, like in this particular case, this is a patient who has set some weight losses associated with the stooling changes, you know, that's not something that is necessarily going to be considered okay. The, the providers, you know, may need to remind themselves that the families in their experience may be in a different place than they are and not just, you know, say, well, this is normal, don't worry about it. But just say, you know, I understand that, you know, your child has been through quite a bit of different aspects of medical care. Some parents don't necessarily realize that a transplant's not going to necessarily solve all of the medical problems that a patient has. They may just be trading certain parts of those medical oversight for other parts of medical oversight. I guess by the way I put it, you know, it's, it's often lifelong immune suppression. It's often a lot of visits to the to the to the doctor over time. Um, and so sometimes it's really just a matter of reassuring parents, but understanding that that this is something that is concerning enough to them that we don't want to be too blase about um, about it. Other pieces of the history that might be a little bit different in pediatrics, the the big one that comes up with diarrhea is water parks. I'm not sure they're as popular with adults as they are with children. I hope not. Uh, yeah. And um, and uh, the other thing we ask about is is pets. You know, I think that you probably do ask about that with, in, in the adult world, but the interaction between a two and a half year old and the family dog might be slightly less um, hygienic, let's say, <laughs> and the interaction between their adults. And the, and the family dog. So, I mean, those are all going to be things in the history that you, that you kind of think about. So for water parks, for uh, when I was studying for boards, cryptosporidium came up yeah. again and again. Are, are there other organisms, probably uh, viruses maybe? 
Yeah, so so you can get anything, um, and it's partly because of the close contact with uh, other children that happens in a water park, but also because of things that are in the water. We do think of cryptosporidium, uh, and then maybe, maybe less commonly, microspora, isospora. And those are things we actually will test for in, in some patients, especially if they have that history of water park attendance. They're, they're, you know, water parks are really popular in this area. The the place that people go is up in Wisconsin to Wisconsin Dells. And, you know, one of the things we talk about with our families prior to transplant, and we do meet with, with most of our families actually prior to transplant, is, you know, maybe taking a year or two off of water parks oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. certain things like that, just until we get to a stable level of immune suppression. And uh, we're a little bit less concerned about potential for opportunistic infections. Sure, sure. So, uh it- my recollection of the last time I visited Chicago was by by car, and I, I drove through uh, Indiana, and I had my chance to buy uh, fireworks, and then I uh, drove from Chicago to Madison, Wisconsin, and once again, I had my chance to buy our fireworks, which made me realize that Illinois probably did not sell fireworks. That is correct. At least as far as I know, I haven't tried to buy fireworks in Illinois, at least in the Chicago area, you can't buy them. But yeah, from the Indiana border to the Wisconsin border, less than two-hour drive, so it's, you know, it's pretty close. You can you can get to a lot of different places. You can certainly get to a rural area pretty quickly from Chicago. Mm-hmm. For example, I grew up outside of New York City and it was a different environment. Sure, sure. So um, what are some of the tests that you might do on this, on this kid? Multiplex tests are what is increasingly available at our institution. Yeah. So, you know, we, um, we don't always use the multiplex right away, and that's partly because it's not available in our own hospital laboratory at the current time, although it's something that we are probably moving towards. You know, we almost always will start off in this particular setting. The story is probably more, it's less consistent with, say, an acute bacterial infection because it's been going on for several months. Despite that, most patients probably will get a bacterial culture. It's hard to not send ovarian parasite testing, although that's just rarely helpful. We would often send Giardia antigen testing for a patient like this or, or an EIA. It sort of depends on the day, I guess, what the laboratory does. And then we do specific viral testing most of the time. Adeno, CMV, rotavirus, norovirus would be the main ones that we test for. And if those are not revealing, then you might consider stepping up to a PCR panel. That you know, the problem, one of the problems with the PCR panel is even if you get a positive, you're not always sure if it's really positive. I mean, that's true mm-hmm. for bacterial cultures as well. But you know, for example, I think general viruses are on some of the PCR panels, and I'm not sure that they're generally cause of diarrhea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the, uh, at least in my mind, feared causes is norovirus. Mm-hmm. And it's feared not so much because it, you know, it's going to put the kid in septic shock, but it's feared because it often means that the mycophenolate has to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's hard. And I mean, the mycophenolate itself could be the cause of diarrhea, but right. often when it's norovirus, then the mycophenolate has to go. And then we try to treat it with different things. So uh, nitazoxanide, Northwestern was part of the trial on that. Yeah. So yeah, Mike Eisen led some studies in looking at different treatment options for norovirus with nitazoxanide, I believe, being the first thing that was used. We, we actually did not, I, I think there were some pediatric sites, and we were not one of them for that specific study. But yeah, he was looking at not just nitazoxanide, but the other things that have been tried for chronic norovirus infection include oral immune globulin and breast milk. Um, and I don't know that any of them have really had a lot of support in the literature. Some of them are extrapolated from other studies. So for example, the the nitazoxanide studies are really small. I mean, they've done, I think there are less than a couple dozen patients. They do suggest that they're, at least for at least for norovirus, I guess I should back up a little bit. I think there's been some work 
on rotavirus nicotinoides oxenide that have involved larger patients, uh, larger amounts of patients. But even those, I, I believe, were less than 30 to 40 patients total. So mm-hmm. not really, you know, to the level of uh, a randomized controlled trial that would really establish whether or not it's effective. But it seems to be beneficial, at least in some uh, situations. Those were not immunocompromised patients that I think the initial studies for nitazoxamide were done, and I think those are done in children who are immunocompetent otherwise, although they may have been done overseas where the epidemiology might be a little bit different than in the U.S. You know, that's been extrapolated to be used in, in norovirus infection, and it's really still not clear, I think, to a lot of us as practitioners whether or not it's helpful. It's it, In some patients, there does seem to be a response, but as I think we all know, the, the, the this type of infection tends to be somewhat waxing already, so... It's hard to know for sure when you make an intervention if it's really if it's really helping or if it's just something that happens to correspond to when the patient is going to get better anyway. I think the same is true for oral immune globulin. There was a, a study that I think was one of the first ones that was done in University of Nebraska, which was done in children, I think, and um, you know showed there might be some benefits. That's often used. It's often used second line. It is very difficult to operationalize. Usually in our patient population, they have to be in the hospital to do it. They often have to have an NG tube to tolerate it. Um, and it's it, it's on the more expensive side because of the fact that they have to be admitted. And it's also not clear how well it works. I and mean, I think it does actually get through. If, if you do give it orally, it does get into the stomach. There's been some studies that suggest you can find it in the stool in active form. Um, you can find it bound to viral particles if you look hard enough. But whether or not it's actually doing anything, I think is still open to question. I think the same is true for breast milk. I mean, I think if the concept is similar, you're you're talking about the passive immunity that you get in breast milk when you're when you're using that as a therapeutic. But I think the idea there is more attractive to somebody who's say in the in the toddler age group where it might be something that is at least uh, a little bit more tolerable from a psychological standpoint than maybe an adult. Yeah, we've also used IVIG, and 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 it, again, it it keeps going back to the same thing, which you hit the nail right on the head, is that that this is a waxing and waning disease, and in uh, non-immunocompromised people, including me, who once had norovirus on a trip to San Diego, it's not a fun infection, but it goes away in about three days, and it's done, and it may take you a little bit of time after that to kind of get better, but it goes away. Whereas norovirus in our patient population will sometimes come back. It, it may linger for a long, long time, or it may go away and then come back. And there's that norovirus again in the stool and the PCR. So I, I don't think that they're getting reinfected. I think that they are having the virus at some sort of location, not latent, but colonized, yeah. if you will. I don't yeah, know if you can colonize with the virus. Yeah. I think we would say persistent is a good way to put it because it does seem to be, you, sh- you do seem to be able to detect it. Periodically, it may go away event in interim time periods, but it's not clear if that's just an assay detection issue. And and while this is happening, interspersed upon that is uh, the disappearance of mycophenolate, maybe the reappearance of mycophenolate, a treatment course with nitazoxanide, IVIG, and you'd even mentioned metronidazole, which I just want to touch on a little bit, probably with the same difficulty in interpreting the data. So um, I often find that I, I love listening to patients. I, I, I preach again and again and again, listen to the patient, but I think it is difficult sometimes for the patient and the doctor to discern what it is exactly that did make them better. Yeah. The metronidazole story is, is it's actually a little bit, we had a paper recently, which uh, I think you're familiar with that, um, that at least reported on our experience with metronidazole for neurovirus and 
the the story is a little bit more interesting than the paper, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But the initial way this came about was um, I also take care of our HIV population, and we had a poorly controlled HIV patient who had had recurrent chronic diarrhea, which was associated with Giardia. And we kept when he he was coming every six months or so, and he would get better in between. And you know, we would test him every once in a while. But one of the times he came in, I was I was thinking, I'm sure this is going to be Giardia again. I started him on metronidazole. We sent him home, sent all the tests before he went home. And uh, one of them came back positive for neuro three or four days later. So we called him and said, you know, you can stop the metronidazole. It's not doing anything. And he said, no, I'm feeling a lot better now. So, um, so we looked into that a little bit. And it turns out it, there is in the literature, at least in animal models, evidence that neurovirus and other enteric viruses require normal a normal microbiome to cause disease. So if you take mice and you deplete them of their enteric bacteria, they are much less susceptible to disease from urine norovirus or from other enteric viruses that can cause disease in mice. And there's there's evidence in in vitro studies as well that that bacteria may be contributing to the infectability of the enteric cells with different enteric viruses. So, you know, we we sort of postulated that perhaps there's some effect of metronidazole on the enteric flora that decreases the ability of norovirus to cause disease, at least for this one particular patient. So we tried it empirically in a handful of other patients with chronic neurovirus. And, you know, at least our, our, our APN, who is really close with a lot of our families and, and really provides a great service to them, kept reporting back to us, you know, at least some of them seem like they're getting better. And it's certainly cheaper for a lot of families to get uh, metronidazole than it is for them to get nitazoxalide, which often requires a prior authorization and sometimes is denied by insurance. And so, you know, we've tried it several times since then. The paper reports that, you know, it, Seem to work for some patients about you know two thirds of the time, which is about the same amount of time that it worked. That nitazoxamide seemed to work, but just with all the caveats that we already talked about, that some of these patients are going to get better no matter what you do. No, super interesting, and I think an area to be looked at further because norovirus is such a problem for our patients. And so, thank you for uh, being part of studying this because our patients do suffer from it, and uh, any solution that that works would be great for them. Switching gears a little bit, you've done a ton of work with COVID in the past few years. I guess I would ask what made you get into it, although the answer is probably going to be similar to everybody, which is there was a gaping hole and uh, you had expertise. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I think that actually was as much from, in my particular case, it was as much related to the clinical trial work that I had been doing as it was the, the clinical care work that I had been doing. You know, a lot of people in transplant ID, yourself included, have been involved in evaluating COVID therapies and and developing guidelines for helping clinicians to manage patients who have COVID. And, you know, I think that was partly related to the fact that most of us have a lot of comfort in evaluating therapeutics for viral infections. In, In the case of the clinical trials that I had been working on, you know, I have a study team that prior to the pandemic was already working on respiratory viral diseases. So um, we have been involved in a lot of studies on both uh, antibodies to prevent RSV infection in babies and on therapeutics for RSV and influenza. And so, you know, COVID comes along and it really fits within the the, the skill set of my study team. And so we've actually been able to be involved in a lot of the pediatric studies, not just for monoclonal antibodies, but also for remdesivir and for vaccines now. And so we've been working on COVID vaccination in uh, young children over the last year and year, year and a half. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it really sort of stemmed out of our own expertise and our access to our study population, but it's been 
it's been really consuming. So we've almost focused on COVID studies at this point to the exclusivity of some other studies, and we're just starting to get some of our other studies back open again. So did you uh, expect that, I'll cut to the chase about me, I did not expect that it would be such a political issue, particularly, I guess, with kids, uh, schools and vaccinations uh, with COVID? You know, it's a, that's a great question. The, the thought came up. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of us had had been looked to in our communities as experts and, and, and contacted by our local news. And I remember being asked the question early in the pandemic about uh, the example that was given at the time. There were strict lockdowns in China, and we were not nearly at that point in the U.S. about whether we would in the U.S. ever be subject to lockdowns where there would, you know, the enforcement on the streets, preventing people from leaving their houses. And I said, you know, I don't, number one, I don't think the U.S. would actually tolerate that. <laughs> and number two, um, I, I don't know if it's necessary. You know, I think that if we get good, consistent messaging from leadership, then um, we can get everybody to pull together to try to put in place mitigation measures that might mitigate the spread of the pandemic. And I really don't think that latter part happened. I mean, there was inconsistent messaging, certainly from a lot of leadership at the time. And, and there were things done right. There's no question about that. The, the development of vaccines in such a short period of time would not have happened without, the, without what was put into it by the federal government. But that was not the only thing that needed to be done. And a lot of the things that needed to be done from the standpoint of making people understand how serious this was and what kinds of things would help prevent it from becoming more serious, I don't think will really message very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now, sort of in terms of uh, as a pediatric infectious disease doctor, whose patients are some of the most fragile and depend on other kids being vaccinated, are are you sensing trepidation from the parents? You know, that's a great question. So there certainly is, I mean, poor is probably the right word, uptake of the COVID vaccines in children. I think in the under six-year-old population, the um, authorization was, I want to say, in the middle of June. And the population prevalence of vaccination in the under six-year-olds is probably less than 20% still. So it's not thought to be by the general public something of urgency when it comes to vaccinating young children. You know, for since I'm since I'm involved in the vaccine trials, the type of parent I see is much different, right? They are very motivated mm-hmm. to get their children vaccinated. Yeah. And so not only are they getting vaccinated, they are also articulating to me that they are serving as examples for their family and community so that they are advocating for vaccines in those patients. But they are a minority. And, you know, I do think that the politicization of the pandemic has uh, made a contribution to that. But to be fair, the, the disease on a population level is much less severe in children. And so the urgency mm-hmm. is for a lot of parents to get their children vaccinated is in part related to that. Is it known at this point why it is less severe in kids? I mean, I guess viral infections in general are less severe in kids, but the the the, the delta seemed very dramatic. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think there's a lot of study groups that have intriguing hypotheses about why it might be less severe in children, including a more rapid innate response or some cross reactivity between seasonal coronaviruses and the and the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You know, children might have a pre-existing level of immunity that has just been more stimulated because they're exposed to everything early in life. But I, I don't know that anything's really held up as clearly true. I think all of those things are have some data to support them, and it's probably not the entire explanation, but some combination of all of those things. Great. So we have just a few last minutes. So I'll ask you one thing, which has uh, been uh, heartbreaking for me over the years, is uh, taking care of transplant patients, and then you're saying that you take care of HIV patients as well. Sometimes they grow up 
and they need to transfer from the pediatric where there are resources that the adult size does not have to the adult. And I've actually seen back when I was taking care of HIV patients, a couple of these young 20-year-old, 20-year-old kids die, just not make it with the transition. Um, mm -hmm. How long, how, how much do you keep your uh, pediatric? When do they stop being kids? Yeah, that's, that's in some ways, that's changed over the years. I and mean, then it's different, a little different for HIV than it is for our solid urban transplant population. The, the sort of party line for the hospital is when you get to 25, we should be transitioning to an adult provider. For our HIV population, we will keep patients longer than that if if that is what they want, and so we have the blessing of our hospital to do so. And so we have a, you know, the ability to take care of patients. We have a we have a combined adult peds provider in our clinic who can see patients as you know as old as they're willing to come into a pediatric clinic. So so we do you know we have transitioned some patients to adult providers. We usually do that process very intentionally over a long period of time with the understanding of, of exactly the problem that we've said. They often sort of lapse into poor adherence. They don't necessarily have as much. Um, I mean, we do have a lot of tolerance for things like missed appointments and poor adherence to to antiretrovirals in the adolescent time period. That you know maybe some adult providers are a little bit less able to to allow for patients to come in four hours late, for example, and still be seen, which which we will do. <laughs> um, so you know, it's not been a problem recently. I think you know we've sort of seen a change in our in our HIV positive population to be from one that's really difficult to treat. So we've, you know, when I first got here in Chicago in 2007, a lot of our patient population were patients who acquired the infection perinatally and had started on less than optimal regimens that were very difficult to tolerate. So they had a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and they they became difficult to treat and, you know, and often were so highly invested in, in just coming to our clinic, even if they were not well controlled, that getting them transitioned was a challenge. Now it's it's more behaviorally acquired patients that are they have their own challenges, but they they either are or not on the, on the antiretrovirals. And so if they are well controlled, if they're not, they're not well controlled. So we were we're happy to see them either way, and sort of you know work with them to get to a point where they can manage their own health well. And then if they do transition, and a lot of them will, because a lot of them are more independent than some of our perinatally acquired patients were. Then you know we'll help them with that as well. And we have a great team over at Northwestern to help them out. Great, great. So, in the final last minutes, what are, what do you think are some of the things that people should know about pediatric infectious disease, and particularly uh, your little corner of it? Yeah, it, uh, I guess that's a that's a big question, but <laughs> the. Um, I guess the first thing is, you know, people think pediatric infectious diseases takes care of takes care of like strep throat and um, yeah, and you know, uh, RSV infection, which is really a general pediatrics issue. You know, general pediatricians are very good at managing common infections, and those don't tend to come to uh, subspecialists. And as you get, you know, further into subspecialty, I guess it's kind of sub subspecialization when you talk about transplant infectious diseases. You know, the the types of contributions that we make, I think, really are holistic when it comes to the patient. And so meaning they're allowed, you know, we are taking into account their immune state and how they are individually able to respond to infection, what different medicines they're taking, what they are at risk for on the basis of a variety of different aspects of their immune system and of their underlying disease. Because, you know, remember they they're getting a transplant, of course, because they had something before that, which may not have compromised their immune system. 
And, you know, that's a different perspective that then say the transplant teams themselves may have over those patients or the ICU doctors that may be taking care of some of these patients might have. And I think we provide a great contribution to them in that respect. And I think, you know, somebody who's interested in, in still maybe picking out what they might want to specialize in in medicine, you know, we, we have a lot of really close interactions with patients, which sort of satisfies that continuity of care that I think a lot of people um, seek when they are pursuing medicine, but make, I think, really strong intellectual contributions to the management of our patients as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for uh, joining us on the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Until next time, thanks. 